Well, hello, church. Thank you for joining in again with us this Sunday. And thank you to all of you for your kind comments and your encouragement and for participating with us online. We know that this is not how we were created to worship, but during this time, this is the best we can do. And so we look forward to being able to join back together as soon as possible. Uh, Thank you for being a part of our resurrection service last week. It's always an exciting time to be able to worship and celebrate Jesus being raised from the dead. It's the foundation of our faith. And so as we look forward into the coming year, let us remember what Jesus has done, not only his sacrifice for us, but the raising of him from the dead so that we could live a life of victory and look forward to living with him in eternity forever and ever. As we began to discuss what to do next, our teaching team has decided that the book of James would be a helpful book for us to study through over the next several weeks. So this is a book that's familiar to many of you. Maybe you've read it a hundred times. Maybe some of you have never read it before. There's only five chapters, but it's a book that you could sit down and read in one sitting, and it wouldn't take you long at all. So I encourage you to do that as uh, we begin to go through this book over the next several weeks. Whenever you start the study of a book, whether it's the New Testament or the Old Testament, you always want to do an introduction on that book to think about the context, the history, the main characters. And so as we start our study on James this week, I want us to look at five questions and want to answer those questions so it'll help us as we move forward in our study. The first question is, who is the author? The book of James was obviously written by James. We see that in verse 1 when he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know the book was written by James, but which James wrote it? Was it James, son of Alphaeus, James, son of Zebedee, or James, the half-brother of Jesus? It's wildly thought that the book was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. And so we're going to assume that as we move through this book. James wasn't a follower of Jesus during the Savior's time of earth. James was actually a skeptic of Jesus. He grew up with him, but he did not believe in him. We read in Mark 3, verses 20 and 21, that Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they were saying, he is out of his mind. So even his own family didn't follow him. James did not become a follower of Jesus until he appeared to him after his resurrection. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, when he says, then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. After James witnessed the Lord's resurrected body, he became one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, actually the leader of the Jerusalem council and we read that in Acts 12, 17, and Acts 15, 13 through 22. Paul called James one of the pillars of the church in Galatians 2, 9. And as we look at this title, this uh, greeting, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, I just want to pause and mention James being the brother of Jesus and the leader of the Jerusalem council. He could have written this letter in a very boastful way, but instead he wrote it simply identifying himself as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant is always willing to do whatever the Lord asks him to do. And so 
I want to encourage us, church, to carry on in the same way that James is asking us to carry on and to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. This helps me when I think back to Paul's writing in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. He says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So church, let's have the same attitude, the same humility as Jesus the same humility as Paul and his and as James to always give credit to God and God alone for everything good that comes from our life and any accomplishment we obtain. Let us identify ourselves as servants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's question number one. Who is the author? James, the brother of Jesus Christ. Question number two. Who was the original audience and what do we know about them? This question is also in verse one. The original audience was the 12 tribes in the dispersion. They were scattered and living outside of Palestine and Jerusalem. There's no mention of Gentile Christians in the book of James. So we assume that these were Jewish believers and that this was one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. Maybe it was written around 40 AD. The Jewish historian Josephus records that James was martyred for his faith in 62 AD. So we know it was written sometime before then. It was a very early book written in the New Testament. Number three, what do we know about the circumstances in which this book was written? This book was written during a time of turmoil and violence in the Roman Empire as Jews became more and more frustrated with corruption, injustice, and poverty. We, war broke out with Rome and would eventually lead to the destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering of the Jewish believers. Jewish Christians were most likely being heavily persecuted. So keep that in mind as we read through chapter 1 in a few minutes. Number four, what was the author's main message to the original audience? The letter was to incur, written to encourage Christian Jews not to revert to violence in the response to injustice and poverty, but to stay focused on doing good staying holy and to embrace the wisdom of heaven and that of the world. And number five, what is the author's main message to believers today? We hope and pray that we'll discover that as we look at the text over the next several weeks. Professor Robert Wall of Seattle Pacific University says, and I quote, James is a book written for readers whose faith in God is threatened by a daily struggle with hardship." Unquote. Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite pastors, preachers, authors, said this, and I quote, James is like the book of Proverbs for its consistent focus on practical action in the life of faith. It stresses that the life of faith is comprehensive, 
Faith endures in trials, calls on God for wisdom, bridles the tongue, sets aside wickedness, visits orphans and widows, and does not play favorites. It affects every area of our lives. For James, a faith does not, that does not produce real life change is a faith that is worthless. For James, a faith that does not produce real life change is a faith that is worthless, unquote. So I know, I know it may not have been very exciting to have me read those five questions, but I hope that the answers to them will be helpful to you as we move forward in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. So let's take our Bibles, if you have one, doesn't necessarily matter what the translation is. Most all of them are good and accurate. And we'll read chapter 1, 1 through 18. I'd ask you to follow along or even better, just close your eyes. Pray that the Holy Spirit would teach you His Word and meditate on the Word of God as I read. So James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured, and lured away and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Lord, we thank you for your word that it is true, that it is from you, that it brings life, it gives health, it encourages us, it can Vix us, it challenges us, and the Holy Spirit can teach us today to be transformed, to be renewed, to be people that follow after you with our whole heart, God. And so we ask that you would teach us your word today. Move the speaker and all the flaws out of the way, all the nervousness, all the words, all the stuttering, and allow 
your word to go forth, God, that this church body would be taught by you, that we would be empowered in victory to live our lives as followers of Christ, that would be bold and would love you with all of our hearts and be a witness to our community. We ask this in your name, Jesus, and we pray. Amen. Well, I got, I'm sure like some of you, you've received a gift at some point in your life that you didn't want. Um, I've had many of those. Maybe you got a present from uh, a spouse or from your father-in-law for your mother-in-law, from a girlfriend, boyfriend, uh, your parent, your child. It was a gift you just didn't really want at all. Uh, when I was 14, I really started having a desire to play the guitar. I had played the saxophone before, and I enjoy playing the saxophone. I still do to this day, and I love jazz music, but there's only so much music you can play on a saxophone, and, and you seem a little weird if you bring your saxophone on a camping trip or at an outing with some of your friends at their house. A guitar is a much more appropriate instrument for that. I mentioned to you um, in one of the devotionals last week that I fell in love with a lot of different kinds of music because uh, when my mom and I would spend time together, she would introduce me to the Beatles and to Bob Dylan and John Denver and Johnny Cash and all these different musical artists. And guess what they all had in common? They all played the guitar. And so I thought the guitar was really cool. And I, I wanted a guitar so bad, we didn't have internet back then. So I would go to stores and I would buy magazines and read about guitars. I would get coloring sheets and draw pictures of guitars. When I wasn't paying attention in school, I would try to draw stick, stick guitars with me playing the guitar. And I just became absolutely obsessed with wanting a guitar. And I made sure that my brother and my mom and my dad all knew that I wanted a guitar. And, and I hope to get one for my birthday, which is October 17th, if you want to write that down. I asked for a guitar for my birthday. I didn't get a guitar for my birthday, so I was very disappointed. And <clears throat> I just prayed and, and, and hoped that at some point I would, I would get a guitar. We didn't have a lot of money as a family, and I didn't have an income at 14 to save up money um, by myself. So at Thanksgiving, I asked for a guitar again, hoping that I might be able to get one at Christmas time. Christmas came, and I ran down the stairs as most kids do. Might be a little weird doing that at 14, but I looked under the tree and, and saw all the presents and I was patient and I opened the small ones from my grandmother and from other people and took my time and thanked everybody. But I had my eye out to see if there was a large package anywhere in the room that looked like it might be a guitar. And there it was in the corner was what looked like a large present that might have been a guitar case. So after I opened all the other presents and was grateful and smiled for all those, I got that large present and I treasured it as I thought this was a guitar. And I opened up the paper and there it was. It was a case. I knew it was a musical instrument. And I opened the case up and to my surprise and disappointment, it was a banjo. Now, if you had your heart set on a guitar and you got a banjo, then obviously you're going to be a little bit disappointed. But I looked at my mom and she was smiling and glowing, so happy to be able to give me a guitar for Christmas. My mom passed away about five years ago, and, and even then I'm not sure if she knew the difference between a guitar and a banjo. But I, I learned the best I could to play the banjo, and as soon as I was able, I traded it in at the music store for a guitar. 
And so I learned how to play the guitar. And the point of the story, as silly of it as it is, is that sometimes we get gifts that we don't ask for. Sometimes we get gifts that we would never want. But the gift may be something that we actually need. And as we begin to look at chapter 1 today, James is teaching us that there are gifts that we need, even if sometimes we don't want that gift. And so we look in verse 2 and we read, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, who actually wants a trial of various kinds? I don't think any of us would want that if we're honest. And the word for trial in verse 2 comes from a Greek word that was written at the time to actually imply that the trial that the Jewish Christians were going through was an unwelcome trial. It was an unexpected trial. It brought persecution, poverty, maybe sickness. It was something that they hadn't hoped for. It was something they didn't ask for. They weren't expecting it. They were going about their own business, doing their own thing, living life, and trials and hardships and persecutions came upon them. Isn't that similar to what we are facing today, April 2020 in Rock Hill, South Carolina? Trials have come upon us that were unexpected in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. So not only in our own city and in our own state and in our own country, but all around the world, people, especially believers, are facing trials and hardships. And these are difficulties that affect the church mightily because the church was created to meet together so that we could build each other up and use a diversity of gifts that each one of us has been giving so that we can encourage one each other encourage one another, challenge one another, but also to go into all the world and be a witness. And we're not able to do that, and it stinks. None of us who have been recording over the last several weeks are really thrilled and enjoying about speaking to a camera, high camera, or singing in front of a camera, or praying in front of a camera. It's very awkward and very wooden and very uncomfortable. So we look forward to the day that we can get back together soon and be able to encourage each other in person. But we're going through a trial and a hardship, church, and it's difficult. But we can count it all joy, brothers and sisters, just as the early Jewish Christians did. So let's define what joy is. First of all, we have to do that. I heard a definition for joy, that joy is an extended state of well-being rather than a temporary feeling of happiness. Let me say that again. Joy, which we want to count all joy, is an extended state of well-being rather than a temporary feeling of happiness. So as believers, we want joy. We don't want happiness that is just based on a feeling that fades or a circumstance that makes us feel good. We want joy, which is a state of well-being that lasts for all of eternity. And so we want to count it all joy. We want to live for joy. And we find joy in knowing Jesus who was raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So remember that church when you face difficulties and hardship. There are, there are several reasons that we'll find in this text. I want to mention three right now for why we can count it all joy in trials. First, verse 3 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness can also be translated endurance or perseverance or even patience. We know that trials can build patience and perseverance. And we can grow in our faith and confidence that one, G- one day Jesus will fix this mess that we created. The world that we live in now was never supposed to be as chaotic as it is. One day Jesus will return and he will fix this mess that we have made of his creation. That gives us great great hope. And and I hope, as, as selfish as it may sound, I would be thrilled if he came back today and this world would be restored and we could live for all of eternity with Jesus in paradise. So, One way we can count at all trials, count joy in all trials, is because it produces steadfastness and endurance. A second thing is verse 4. I'm sorry, uh, yeah, verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we can count at all joy in trials because we can become mature and complete in our faith becoming mature and complete in our faith. That allows us to become more like Christ, with more compassion, with more love, with more integrity, with more holiness. We can become more and more like Christ, mature and complete in our faith. So as as we handle trials and hardships, we will lack nothing because we are becoming more and more like Him every single day. I want to be more like Jesus, and I want to be less like Darren. And I hope for our church that we become more like Jesus every single day that we're together, so that maybe with all the flaws that we have, maybe all the things that we don't do well, people will know that we love Jesus and we are becoming more and more like him as we face hardship and trials. A third thing here in verse 5 that we can look to with joy as we face trials is that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So a third thing here that we can count it all joy in trials is because we can gain wisdom And when we gain wisdom, it helps us to understand the trials and the difficulties that we're going through. It aids us in our suffering to be able to be more wise. God will give us wisdom without reproach, which means that there is no disappointment or disapproval with Him. He gives wisdom regardless of a person's previous record. So we can have faith that God is capable and able to give us the wisdom that we need. And so, church, let's ask Him as individuals for wisdom, and let's ask Him together as a church for wisdom that as we face difficulty and as we face hardship and as we face the future, we're looking for Him to give us the wisdom that we need for whatever difficulty it may be that we go through. Proverbs 2.3 says in the New Living Translation, Cry out for insight and ask for understanding. Proverbs 2.6, For the Lord grants wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. So we need to ask God for wisdom, 
And we need to count it all joy when we face trials and hardships because we can gain wisdom, we can become mature and complete, and it can, in, we can build steadfastness and endurance, not lacking in anything. So those are all great things that we can gain through difficulties. And so that's why James tells us to count it all joys when you face difficulties and trials. In the 1800s, there was a man named Charles Blondin. He was a French tightrope walker and acrobat. He was known for crossing the Niagara Gorge, which is about 1,100 feet across. And in 1859, he crossed that gorge on multiple occasions. He would draw great crowds as on a tightrope, he would walk across 1,100 feet from one side to the other. Crowds would gather and they would cheer for them. And each time that he would do it, he would begin to do different theatrical variations of going across the gorge. He would do it blindfolded or he would do it in a sack or he would do it on stilts or he would sit down midway going across in a typewriter and he would cook and eat an omelet or he would stand on a chair with only one of its legs balanced on, on the rope and he would even take a wheelbarrow and go across from one side to the other. Now, as he did this and the crowds began to swell and they would grow larger and larger, he would eat that up and he would say to the crowd, do you believe that I can walk across this tightrope from one side of the Niagara Gorge to the other? And the crowd would cheer, we believe. And he would say, do you believe? And they would say, we believe. And then he would ask, who's willing to get in the wheelbarrow? and it would be silent. So faith for us becomes being a people who are willing to get in the wheelbarrow and to trust Christ and to trust God that no matter what difficulty and hardship we're facing, He can lead us through. He can give us wisdom. He can help us to mature in our faith. And we can grow endurance and steadfastness to be able to become people that are more and more like Him every single day. So let's just pray for a moment to to ask God to give us wisdom, to help us during this difficult time. And let's just thank him for how good he's been to us, even in the midst of a pandemic. Lord, thank you for being sovereign, for being in control. God, that we can trust you no matter what the difficulty. We love you, Lord. Help us to love you more. Help us to trust in your word. Help us to read your word, to study your word, to be a people who are passionate about following after you and passionate about being together so that we can encourage each other and build each other up and to become equipped so that we can be fully devoted followers of you and able to, to share your gospel with the whole world, Lord. One person at a time, may we change lives with those people that we encounter. Thank you, Lord. Now let's change gears just a little bit um, to verses 9 through 11. From what we can tell, In these three verses, the Jewish Christians were most likely facing some type of extreme 
persecution from poverty. And so we read these words from James. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, where exaltation can also mean humble circumstances, and, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Ephesians 2.6 tells us that God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So instead of focusing on our circumstances now, and instead of Jewish believers focusing on their poverty then, those of you who are struggling financially, those of you who are struggling with illness, those of you who are struggling with anxiety and depression, we count it all joy and we get through those circumstances because Ephesians 2.6 tells us that positionally we are already seated with Christ in heaven and we are eternally secure with Him. Though we live in this tent and though we live in this flesh, we are all already able to be in paradise spiritually because of what Christ has done for us. So it gives us great comfort and great joy to know that we are already seated with Him in the heavenly places. So for a Christian who is struggling in poverty, focus on what Christ has done for you and where you are already seated in heaven. For a wealthy Christian, thank God for the wealth that you have and give sacrificially to those in need, especially in the church, who are your brothers and sisters who may be unemployed or may be going through a hardship but you too focus on where you are positionally with Christ, already seated with Him in the heavenly places. And as a warning to those of you who might be listening, who are non-Christians this morning, that are proud and boastful about your wealth, that maybe treat others with harshness because you are wealthy, or maybe you're arrogant because of the wealth that you have. Every good, in, every good gift is from God. The wealth that you have belongs to God. And so if you're a person who doesn't believe in Christ this morning, I warn you to repent because you can be in a dangerous place to be apart from Christ. The wealth that you have may last on this earth, but you cannot take it into eternity. Isaiah 46 and 7 says, A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. Proverbs 28, 11 says, Rich people may think they are wise, but a poor person with discernment can see right through them. And Matthew 6, 19-21 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So church, be encouraged today and focus on the fact that your position is that you're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Don't focus on the circumstances that you're in right now. Focus on the fact that Christ is in control and spiritually you are seated with Him in the heavenly places. So if that's not good news, then verse 12 is even better news. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So what is this crown of life? Scholars are divided on this. But the crown of life is mentioned in Revelation 2.10, 1 Corinthians 9.24-27, 1 Peter 5.4, and 2 Timothy 4.8. Let me read those again so you can try to write them down and go look them up later. And remember, whenever we come to a teaching time, whether it's in Sunday school, on Sunday morning, or in a Bible study, in home group, the speaker and the teacher who comes to you in this setting is not to give you all the answers, but is to be a catalyst for you to begin to study on your own. So you hear chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and it gives you a taste of what the Scripture is saying so that you can go back on your own and study it in even more depth than we're able, ever able to do in a context like this. So, crown of life, Revelation 2.10 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, 1 Peter 5, 4, and 2 Timothy 4, 8. The crown of life might refer to eternal life in the future. It may be referring to improved circumstances and maybe a reward in eternity. Scholars aren't sure. I'm not sure. If you have the answer to that, then encourage your brothers and sisters. None of us are such educated people that the body of Christ can't allow us to grow together. Even though I went to seminary and took 30 classes, some of Hebrew and Greek, it doesn't mean that I'm smarter, better, or more knowledgeable than any of you. We're one body, we're all given gifts, and we need to teach and encourage each other so that we can be all that God wants us to be. But the point is, that there's a crown of life waiting for us and it gives us an opportunity to count it all joy in whatever hardships we may face and whatever things that we may struggle with. So then let's look at verses 13 through 15. You may wonder why this is here, but let me read this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. No one. The word tempted in verse 13 is the same Greek word that you find in verse 2 for trials. But the word tempted is changed here in the English because when it refers to tempted, when it says tempted, that means that the hardship or the trial or the temptation, the struggle is coming from within you. The first trial is external. Someone else is causing that hardship. Temptation in verse 13 is because we choose to yield to something that we shouldn't, and therefore we bring a hardship upon ourselves. So let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and himself tempts no one. How can God tempt anyone when he's holy and perfect and loving? He can't. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The word enticed in that uh, passage there means to, to entice an unsuspecting victim with an attractive bait or lure. It means to draw someone in with something that looks so attractive they, they don't seem to be able to resist it. <clears throat> Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So even when we say the devil made us do it. I don't even think that 
we can give the devil credit. It's us that gives in to the desire. And when the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth, brings forth death. So the opposite of being able to count it all joy and to become mature in your faith and to be able to be blessed by all the trials and persecutions is to yield to temptation and therefore have no joy and to go into a, a mindset of death. Because when we sin, it leaves us to despair. It leads us into destruction. It's everything against what God wants to give us in the verses before that. And so, church, don't yield to temptation. Don't yield to sin. The Holy Spirit lives in you as a believer and has given you the same power that overcame the grave. And so you today can live in victory. It doesn't mean that you'll be perfect. It doesn't mean that you won't sin. It doesn't mean that you won't struggle. But you can live a life of holiness if you yield to the Spirit of God within you. And I know as a human being that that's difficult. And I know that you all that are listening are human beings. So we need each other. We need to strengthen each other as we go through various temptations and trials, pick up the telephone and call a brother and sister and say, I'm really struggling right now and I need you to pray for me. And that's the way that we can overcome sin with each other and help from God who gives us strength and will answer our prayers to give us victory. And we finish with verse 16 through verse 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. This is such great news. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Father of lights refers to creation. James refers to God's power over the sun, over the moon, and the stars. We see that in Genesis 1, 14 through 18, Psalm 136, 7, and Jeremiah 31, 35. There's no variation or shadow due to change. The fluctuation of light given in the heavenly bodies is in complete contrast with God's constant nature. So because of God's goodness, His perfection, He's never changing, we can have faith and confidence in the midst of trials and hardships. In verse 18, of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. The word of truth is the gospel, the good news, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. First fruits here means the first or the best of your crops or your income. For Jewish believers who may have, may have been in agriculture, the best of their crops demonstrated that a greater harvest was going to come. And in a sense, a greater harvest did come not only with literal crops but a great harvest of followers of believers because of what the early church set out and the hope that they lived in facing difficulties and trials. So church, just as the Jewish Christians were set apart to be the light in the darkness during their day, we as the church in 2020 are set apart to be a church and a group of believers that brings light and hope to our community, especially in the midst of a pandemic when people are hurting, when people are discouraged. So let's be the first fruits of all creation and tell the world that we have the good news and that we have hope and truth 
and life. And no matter what anyone is facing, we can be the hands and feet and the servants of Christ as James was a servant of Jesus and tell the whole world that there's a God who loves them and wants to be in a relationship with them. So just in closing, a few application points that I can think of. Church, count it all joy when you face trials and hardships because God is in control even during those trials. Tests and trials produce endurance and Christ-likeness, and that's good news for us if we can become more like Jesus and less like us. God is the source of all wisdom, and He will give us the wisdom we need if we trust that He is able and powerful enough to give us that. And Jesus could return today. I don't know if I can say it enough how encouraging that is that even before you finish listening to this message that Jesus could return today. So be ready and tell your loved ones how much Jesus loves them and the hope that he wants to give to every person, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of job loss, even in the midst of physical hardship, persecution, and any other terrible thing that you can think of. There is joy that we can count in in all circumstances because Jesus is Lord. We can already know that we're positionally with him in the heavenlies and that he can return today. So church, can we be a church that counts it all joy amid trials? Can we be a church that grows in our faith, wisdom, and holiness? Can we be a church that leads a great number of people to follow Jesus because of the way we live our lives? Can we? Can we, church? I hope and pray we can. Lord, what a challenge in your word that we are called to be a people just like the early Jewish Christians, to go forth in the midst of hardship and trial, to bring gospel truth and renewal to our city and our nation and our community and our world. God, may we be a church that is alive because of what you've done in our hearts. We love you, Lord. We pray that our church and we as individuals are a blessing to you and that as you hear this message and you listen to us sing and you, you gather with us, that your heart is just blessed and touched, that we're a people that are every day seeking you and desiring to become more like you, Lord. Allow us to become more like you and less like ourselves so that we can bring glory and honor to you, Lord. We love you, God. As the worship team comes and we sing and exalt your name, Lord, may, be, may this be a wonderful time for us to joyously rejoice in all that you've done for us. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen.